0: This is what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, the Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world...
1: I don't know if you watch gymnastics. The only time, I'm just going to admit right up front, that I, know, I don't know anything about gymnastics, all you gymnasts. Um, but I do watch gymnastics occasionally every four years at the Olympics. Raise your hand if you're in a gymnastic watcher like me. And uh, so that means we don't know anything, but I'm, I'm often uh, mesmerized by the, the vault where the person goes running, 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 and then hits that springboard and does things in the air and tries to land on their feet. It's quite fascinating. Now imagine if you were at the Olympics and you were watching the gymnasts going down and vaulting and vaulting and vaulting and it was all quite interesting and at the very end of all the competitors, uh, you were stunned because everyone rose and began applauding for the springboard. In fact, the athletes came around the springboard, and they, some of them knelt, knelt down beside it, and others lit little candles, and some were caressing its edges. Uh, several began to sing a song to the springboard, and you would think to yourself, "This is nuts. <laughs> uh, this doesn't make any sense. Why are they worshiping the springboard? The springboard is there to serve a different purpose." What God tells us in Psalm 19 is that everything He has made, all of creation, every mountain tree, butterfly, every cell and microbe, all of creation, part of the reason for which it was made was to serve as a springboard by which to launch you into worship and delight in God Himself. All creations is like that springboard. We don't worship the creation. We worship the one who has created all things. Now this Psalm begins, Psalm 19 begins with the words to the choir master. Uh, This means it was in all likelihood something that was to be sung in the corporate worship of God's people. And we're also told in the inscription there that this is a Psalm of David. So, uh, this is sort of David's title to the psalm. My title to this sermon is, Delight in God Through What He Has Made. That's what we're aiming to do. And the thing I'm going to be arguing for from this psalm is that you and I have to learn to look at creation like a springboard that is to launch us into delight in God himself. Does that make sense? We want to think of creation like the springboard that launches us into delight in God. That's part of what creation is for. It's not all of what creation is for, it's part of why creation exists. It is to give you, as a Christian, another means to be happy in God and thereby to glorify God. But I'm going to tell you that right off the bat, I'm going to make that point at the end of this sermon. I'm not going to make it throughout because you you have to follow the progression of the psalm. There's a logic to this psalm. Uh, David is proceeding in a particular way. And once you get to the end of the psalm and you kind of understand how it's all put together, you can look back over the whole psalm and realize, oh, God is calling me to delight in him through the things he has made. And that's something, frankly, that only a Christian can truly do. So I'm making that statement up front. You can test it and see if it's true. Now, this progression in this psalm is a little easier to spot if if we just tip our cards a little bit and talk about two categories of God's revelation. Uh, In in the Christian church, we would talk about general revelation and special revelation. So, general revelation is is what God makes known about himself through what he has made. That means that in the creation, God has made certain things about himself known. That's general revelation. Now, this, this pill may be a little harder to swallow. General revelation is enough to condemn anyone for their unbelief to an eternity of hell. But it's not enough to save anybody. For that we need the other category we call special revelation. So general revelation means basically all of nature. Special revelation we might define as how God makes Himself known through His written Word, the Holy Bible. And that Bible, that book, gives us all we need in order to turn from our sins and trust in the Savior that God has provided. So I might add, this is why Christians are really intent on getting the Bible translated into every possible known language. The Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ which means the people living on some remote island with a distinct language have enough evidence of God in the creation that surrounds them to be guilty before God for their disobedience of God, but they don't have enough special revelation to know how to find God and obey God and repent and trust in Him. That's why we are very motivated to get the Bible in their language so they can see the way to salvation, the path to salvation. That's why we send people to those remote islands, whether that's somewhere in the South Pacific or whether it's a remote cultural island in downtown Toronto. Either way, we have to bring them the special revelation of His Word so that they can be saved. And David understands all of this perfectly well. In fact, it's this psalm that kind of forms these categories for us. He understands that God has revealed Himself in nature, and God has revealed Himself through His Word. And he begins with general revelation. That's the first section of the psalm, uh, the first six verses or so. Uh, He uses the word here, El for God, E-L in the English transliteration. It's the general word for God that all cultures of the day would use to speak of their deity. He's talking about the true God, but he uses this general name for God. However, when you get to verse 7, he changes from talking about God to speaking about Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? That's our God, right? That's God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. It is the covenant-keeping God the God that must be known uniquely and personally in order to go to heaven. That's why Jesus says of Himself, there's no other avenues, there's no other roads, doors, and there's no other ways to get to God but through me because He Himself is God. He is Yahweh. He's the true and only God. Now, you may not know Him yet, and we're very glad you're here. You're very welcome here, and I'm glad you're listening. Um, You may not know Him yet, but I want to let you know that He's been talking to you for a long time. This is my first point. The sky is talking to you. <laughs> verse. Uh, we'll begin in verse one in a moment, but I want you to just remember the progression. David says, "All right, let me just start off. I'm going to tell you how God is communicating to every human being on the planet. He's doing it through the things He has made." And David begins by isolating the one thing that's inescapable for every human. He could have said cedar trees. God reveals himself through cedar trees, but they're not in the Sahara. And he could have said ocean, but uh, they're not here in Toronto. So he chooses something that's everywhere, the sky and the sun. Did you go out and look at those uh, weird cloud formations on Wednesday? Did you see those? Did you, nobody saw them? I like got out of my office and went and looked at them because those were weird, man. What were those weird cloud formations saying? They were saying, there is a God. Let me show you verse 1. Every day, the sky says there's a God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Every day, 24 hours a day, the sky over your head is talking to you, it is preaching, it is recounting, it is relating a message to you, and this declaring of the sky is relentless. David uses a word here to portray both the frequency and the life-giving of the message that's coming from the sky. He says, each day pours out speech. Sometimes that word is translated as uh, like gurgles out or gushes out or bubbles up. It's an irrigation term, speaking about the, the source of a fountain of water. When I lived in California, I went on a hike in the mountains one time and we decided to follow a little river that turned into a tiny stream, that turned into a little creek, that turned into a little trickle, that came to a place on the side of the mountain in rocks where water was just springing out, fresh drinking water from the earth. It was gushing out. It just kept gushing and gushing and gushing. It never stopped. David says the sky is like that. The sky is gushing out the life-giving message that there is a God. God's handiwork, it's a word he uses, of the heavens, God's handiwork of the heavens declares God's existence. It declares God's glory. It's a good spot here to stop and point out that the heavens make known the glory of God. The heavens themselves are not God. That's a mistake people have made for thousands and thousands of years. They've looked out at the blue horizon or the night sky full of starry constellations and something inside of them has has risen up with wonder and joy. But instead of moving past that created thing to the creator, they get stuck on the created thing and they begin to talk to the sun or to the stars or to the clouds or to the universe itself like, like that was God. What are they doing? They're kissing the springboard. Now, if you're not there, go to Romans 1 because we simply have to stop here and consider. I think Paul was thinking about Psalm 19 when he wrote Romans chapter 1. This is one of the most important points to understand from your Bible. When Paul was explaining to the early Christians, why is it all people are guilty for their sins before God? This is what he said, Romans chapter 1 verse 19. Look carefully. I want you to turn there so you can see the words for yourself. Look at what he says. For what can be known, so there's something that can be known about God, what can be known about God is plain to them. The them there is all humanity. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How did you show it to them, God? For his invisible attributes, this means things that are true about God that God Himself is invisible, so we can't see them, we can't see God, but these invisible attributes of God, characteristics of God, namely His eternal power, power that has no beginning and no end, and divine nature that He Himself is deity, He's God, these things, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This means all that has been created, the the earth that you're walking on and the sky you're living under, has been declaring to you two things about God, his eternal power and his divine nature. Paul says, so they are without excuse. Nobody can say, I didn't know there was a God because the sky told you so every morning. He continues, although they knew God in in this sort of cursory way, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. What? What do the heavens declare? The heavens declare the glory of God. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Images resembling birds, animals, people, creeping things. Every single day the sky preaches there is a God, and every day thousands and thousands say, You know what? I'm not listening. But every day everyone hears it. Verse 3 There's no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The deaf hear, the blind see this message. There are no exceptions. Every day, the sky looks down on the earth and says, there is a God. Tomorrow, it's going to say the same thing. There is a God. Day after that, there is a God. Every day, everyone on earth hears it. They don't hear it audibly. They don't hear it in English or Romanian or Arabic, but they hear it in the language of the heart. If you've ever tried to draw (laughs) something… Some of you can, so I'm not talking to you people. Uh, but if you're like me and you've tried, like, you have an idea and you want to try to draw it, and you're looking at your hand and it's like, it's not doing what's in my head. So that's your attempt at art. And then if you go to an actual, like, museum or art gallery and you behold art and you look at it and you're like, some dude or dudette painted that. And. Hopefully you're thinking to yourself like that didn't appear out of nowhere. That art had an artist. His last name might have been Monet or Rembrandt. But the art itself points you to the art to the artist. God says my workmanship is always pointing back to me. And if you would take just a moment and look up at the sky, you're going to find the same thing. Edward Young wrote a poem years and years ago that was quoted by the famous, well, I can't say famous because I didn't know about him until this week, but um, apparently was famous in his day, the British astronomer William Herschel. Anybody know William Herschel? Okay, you people are smarter than me. But William Herschel, he, he did lots of amazing astronomical things, but he used to quote Edward Young's poem when it said this, an undevout astronomer is mad. An undevout astronomer is mad. Herschel was saying, you got to be out of your mind if you can spend your life gazing into the heavens and not believe there is a God. Every day, everyone hears the message of the sky. Every day, the sky's primary tenant reminds you Kids, a tenant is, uh, if your mom and dad uh, rent the place you live, you maybe don't even know. You can ask them later. But if they rent it, that means you're a tenant in that place. Somebody else owns it, you're a tenant. The sun is like that. It's a temporary tenant. The sun is not going to last. We all know that. Uh, It's all going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. But the tenant I'm referring to here is the sun. It's primary. I call it primary because to David, the sun would have been the most visually obvious resident of the sky. And he compares the sun to a man. Actually, to two men. In them, in, this, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. This is verse 5 now, which the tent, or, sorry, the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And, second image, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David says the sun is like two different kinds of men. First of all, it's like a groom. Ever seen a groom standing, uh, at the, you know, waiting for his bride to come? Uh, he is radiant because he's expectant. And, and the imagery of David's day says, imagine the groom coming out of his tent to his wedding. He's, he's excited. He's radiant. So, so that's one picture. He says the sun is like that groom. Secondly, he says the sun is like your uh, you're really fit next-door neighbor. There are things in life I don't understand. One of the things I don't understand is running. I had an amen. Thank you. I don't know who that was, but yes. I don't, like, my body was not built to run, and you, are, there's people here who run, and I don't understand. You just, you just, and you not only run, you run with a smile. There's not been a moment in my life I have ran with a smile. You're enjoying yourself. I don't understand that. So this image is harder for me to relate to, but David says that the son is like a strong man, an athlete, just means a a great man, um, and, and he's just running along with joy. A happy groom, an energetic happy runner, David says, the sun is a giant, happy, energized, radiant orb casting down its heat upon us every day to varying degrees, so much so that even the north-facing side of a mountain that never gets hit by a direct ray does get hit by its warmth. Being a Canadian, one of my most favorite things to do is get on an airplane in the winter because you know the sun hides from us all winter behind evil clouds. (laughs) And I love that moment when you when you turbulently break through the clouds and you come up and there's the sun and I go, "Hello, old friend." <laughs> and he says, "There is a God." That's what he's saying. But that sun cannot lead me to salvation. Because of the pervasive and perverse effects of sin, I'm never going to come to right conclusions about the source and sustainer of that sun without my Bible. And that takes us to our second point. Yes, the sky is talking to you, but number two, the Bible is talking to you more clearly. <laughs> Now, here's where we move from general revelation, what God has made, to special revelation, what God has said. And here's where we begin to see the proper name of God. We go from talking about El, now we're talking about Yahweh. That name occurs seven times in this psalm, six in a row. The seventh will come right at the end of the psalm. You might want to keep that in mind they all occur in these little couplets that follow the the name Yahweh comes at the front of the sentence in the Hebrew language that's how you there's no exclamation marks so if you want to emphasize something you just take the word from wherever it was and you put it at the front and that's what David does so it's Yahweh's law Yahweh's commandments Yahweh's precepts because it's in Yahweh's Bible that he has spoken most clearly And then David uses six different words to describe your Bible, and we'll look at each of them in a moment. But what's important to see here is that each of these six couplets or little statements about Yahweh's Word tells you what Yahweh's Word does in the life of a Christian. So he's not writing here about, you know, just hearing the Bible or just reading the Bible. He uses six different words here to describe uh, that the, the words he uses require response. So, for instance, uh, you don't just read a law. You you have to obey a law. He uses the word law. You don't just memorize a commandment. You do a commandment. So, the word that he uses describe God's Word (laughs) is saying it's something that you have to respond to. You read a law, that's not a recommendation. You see a commandment, that's not mere advice. David's teaching us that This is Yahweh's word, therefore it is to be responded to, it's to be obeyed. It's bad enough that we would disobey what God has been telling us via the sky our whole lifetime. It's far worse to disobey what God has written down for you in his Bible. So what has he written down? Six things about his word so that we know what it is and what it does. First, he says, Yahweh's sufficient instruction turns you in the right direction by the law of but the law of the lord verse 7 is perfect reviving the soul the law of the lord is perfect by perfect david is he's saying sufficient it's it's enough All that we need in order to live a life pleasing to God is found in the Bible. The Bible is not going to tell you how to invest in cryptocurrencies, nor will it tell you to marry this particular man or dye your hair this particular color, but it will tell you all that you need to know to get your soul, your real you, in the words of this little couplet here, revived. Revived means turned back to life. So picture someone whose heart has stopped, and you get the shocker thing, and chink, and you rev... <laughs> that's a really medical term, chink, shocker thing. And, and you revive them. You bring them back to life. The spiritual life always begins with an about face. You move toward God, and once you do that, you're moving away from sin and Self. That's why Jesus says to people when he's walking on the earth, come to me. The very act of coming to him means you're leaving something behind. Have you come to him? Have you you turned toward him? This isn't a physical thing. It's not your body moving in a particular direction. This is the direction of the soul. Are Are you looking to him to be your Savior? He's inviting you to come and to be revived. Yahweh's sufficient instruction turns you in the right direction. Secondly, Yahweh's faithful statutes tell you how to live. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Things that are sure are dependable, trustworthy. Solomon used uh, the same word in Proverbs 27, 6. It's translated in our Bibles there as faithful. Faithful, or sure, are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So, he's saying they're faithful or sure or trustworthy are the wounds of your friend, somebody who loves you enough to say, I think you're wrong here. It's a wound, but it's for your good. In comparison to the treacherous and deceitful and the, the affirmations of your enemy, a, a true friend will tell you the truth, an enemy, but, like, oh, there, there, it's fine, it's fine. There's no better friend to have than God himself. His testimony is sure. His attested to, his verified statements are sure. They're so reliable that when you do them, they will lead you to a place of wisdom. What is wisdom? It's living a life that is pleasing to God. A PhD does not make anybody wise. When Paul looked at one church in his day, he wrote to them and said of them this. How'd you like this on your Hallmark card? God chose you. Uh, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So, he's talking about the membership of the church in Corinth, and he says, you're foolish and you're weak. That's who he picks, foolish and weak people. (laughs) Why? Why do some astronomers persist in undevout thoughts? Paul tells us in the next chapter, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Unless God does a work in your life and spiritually revives you, you'll keep looking through the telescope and going, isn't that interesting how this all happened accidentally? Many of the so-called brilliant in our day are really, in in biblical terms, quite foolish. They're not wise. But for those whom God has saved, those who now trust God's testimony, those who obey that testimony, they find true wisdom, and a life of wisdom brings joy. That's the third one. Yahweh's holy orders bring you joy. This is verse eight. By holy orders, by the way, I'm not saying become a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, I mean orders in the sense of uh, when your commanding sergeant says, "Here are your orders," uh, right? Like, go do this. That's the word that he uses here: precepts or orders. the The orders or precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. Obeying God's orders moves us closer to living a life that aligns to God's character and God's person, what the Bible calls a righteous life, a life that is marked by right behavior. Right there simply means in line with God. God is the standard of rightness, and when you're over here, you're unrighteous, but when you get your life aligned to God, you are righteous. And Christian, you you know this experientially. You've had seasons in your life when you are doing what your Bible tells you to do, even though it's difficult in the moment, and you know joy, don't you? Even if you're suffering for doing what is right, you know joy. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fourth thing, Yahweh's unstained demands help you to see the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There's things about getting older that I love. There's some that I don't love as much. Uh, when uh, anyway, one of the things I don't love is that I can't read in the dark anymore. I gotta have. I gotta, always gotta find the light. Can't read anything. Go to a restaurant. I'm like, can they please turn up the lights? I'm like the old guy. That's me. I can't read without light. <laughs> Yahweh's demands. Yahweh's commandments. Whether it's one of those special ten or whether it's some of the ones that Jesus gave on that mountain. All of of Yahweh's direct imperatives are pure. They are clean. They're unstained by the world in any way whatsoever. They are like light that's shining on a dark page. His commandments enlighten us. And we can walk around like the Mandalorians and go, this is the way. (laughs) Yahweh's Nobody watches Disney. Yahweh's pure message stands the test of time. Look at verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This is the tricky one out of the lot here. David is referring to the Bible as the fear of the Lord. What he's doing, he's describing your Bible by the effect it has on you. They fear the Lord. Christians fear God because they've read it in the Word, and this Word generated, this Word-directed fear, he says, is clean. He means you're ethically pure. It's acceptable in the sight of God, and because it's acceptable to God, it never ends. It endures forever. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Why is that important? One reason is because the sun and the sky will come to an end. They are temporary, No point resting your life on them. But the truth contained on the pages of your Bible lasts forever, and as such, you can bank your whole life on it. And that takes us to David's sixth and extended comment on God's book. He says, Yahweh's reliable and desirable rules will woo and warn you throughout your life. So the the, the end of verse nine, the rules of Yahweh are true, and righteous altogether more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb moreover by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward so he's he's limiting this application to the christian here cuz he talks about your servant means people who are following god and david says the bible for christians is both reliable and desirable it's reliable. It's true and righteous altogether. You can depend upon it. It's desirable. He says it's better than like oodles of honey, which is uh, in that day and age, honey was a commodity. Like you go to the store now and you get Billy Bee or whatever, and like it's no big deal. But getting honey was a big thing. So so he says this is the, God's word is sweeter than honey. Drippings of the honeycomb. It, drippings of there means like an abundance. You got more honey than you know what to do with. And the reason that God's word is so reliable and desirable is that God's truth is constantly warning us and wooing us. It's warning us away from folly and it's wooing us toward obedience, promising great reward when we obey. So that's your Bible. The sky and the sun are great, but the ESV is better, you can quote me. (laughs) You hold in your hands the very Word of God, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. It is reviving, instructing, rejoicing, enlightening, enduring, and rewarding. You, you have that on your device or in paper copy in front of you. You, a person who was born in sin and from the womb set out to rebel against your creator in all of his ways. You, a person who has been saved by that God, by his grace, to live for him in all his ways, miracle of miracles, gives you his word. And that means that if the sky is talking to you, and the Bible is talking to you more clearly, number three, you should really stop talking to yourself. Or maybe I should say listening to yourself. Both sound right to me, but talking keeps us in line. So, the point David is making here is we should not be trusting in ourselves. After all, even after God saves us from our sins, we have to ask the question that David asks there in verse 12, who can discern… His errors. Who? Who can accurately summarize all of their sins, everything they've done wrong? Who can account for all of his errors, all of his mistakes, all of his lapses, all of his sins? The obvious answer in the rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody can. Certainly not somebody who's depending on the sky alone to teach them all about God. That person barely understands what a sin is. The only way to know these crucial things is by the Word, not the world, by the truth, not by trees, by the Bible, not a bison, by the revelation, not the constellations. However. Even after God saves a person, we have this ongoing problem when it comes to delighting in Him above all else. You've got sins you don't even know about. David says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. He doesn't mean the sins that you're actually hiding from other people and think you're hiding from God. He means the sins that are hidden from Him. Declare me innocent from my hidden sins, my hidden errors, my hidden faults. There is a category in your Bible for what are called unintentional sins, actions that at the time we did not realize were sinful when we did them. And certainly David's including that here, but more specifically, he's talking about the sins that are hidden from us in the sense of our own negligence or ignorance or worst forgetfulness. I mean, do you remember all your sins of 2021, every single one of them? Of course not. God does. Earlier in the psalm, David said of the sun, he's in, back in verse 6, there's nothing hidden from its heat. He takes that same word and uses it here and says, there are many sins that are hidden from my own consciousness, my own memory. And David begs the Lord to declare him innocent. Lord, declare me not guilty in regards to the sins I can't even recall. No wonder he would write in another psalm, my iniquities are more than the hairs of my head. There is only one way to be declared innocent from these sins. Do you know what that way is? It's certainly not paying God back for each one. You can't even remember each one. (laughs) How are you going to pay Him back for what you can't remember? You're going to need something a lot better than that. you got sins you don't even know about. You have other sins that you would gladly commit. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. There's a wise and precious prayer for every Christian to make. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me, Lord. These are what we call willful, deliberate sins, rebellions against God. David says, Lord, please hold me back from these. Restrain me. Don't let me do it. You know what that prayer is? That is a, a, a prayer that is, is a profound admission of weakness. I am so glad that God is impressed by our weakness, not our supposed strength. David says, Look, this is what I pray. God, I can feel it in my heart. Even as a believer in you, I want to do things that you despise. Oh, please keep me back from that. Please. Satan is there every morning when you get up, and he presents you a list of intentionals and unintentionals. Which ones do you want? Here's a whole lot of sins that you can do. Take your pick. But we turn away from that deceiver, and we look to our Redeemer, and we say, oh God, please forgive me from all I've unwittingly done to shame your name, and please hold me back from ever arrogantly striking out in rebellion against you whom I know so much better. And if the Lord answers those two prayers, we can say like David, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Blameless is a wonderful Bible word because it doesn't mean perfect. It means forgiven and in right standing with God because atonement has been made. The penalty for sin has been taken care of. The only possible way to be innocent is of great transgression is to be purchased and cleansed by a great savior. Has he bought you? Has he purchased you? Has he cleansed you? Have you asked him to do it? You do it now. He, he is a soft touch to honest prayers. You could be like, honestly, you could be the worst sinner in this room. I don't know what that would be, but you could, you could like, you might know. you say, yeah, I know. I'm the worst sinner in this room. And if you were to turn to God and say to God, would you please forgive me? And would you please take what Jesus did for sinners and make it mine? And would you forgive me? Do you know he would answer that prayer? And he would save you from your sins. And once he rescues you and saves you, Tells you how to live your Christian life. Here's the fourth thing you should talk to your Creator. That's what David does. Verse fourteen, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. God looks at us thoroughly, doesn't it? Doesn't He? He, he, he judges everything we say or do. He judges everything we ever think. David acknowledges this in the conclusion to his poem. He looks at God and he says, look, I want my whole life to be acceptable and approved, to be good in your eyes. I want my external life, everything I say and do, the words of my mouth. I want my internal life, what I think and what I feel, the meditation of my heart. I want all of that. I want you to see all of that and say, not guilty, good, clean, righteous. And the only way God will do that for you is if you can really call him Yahweh, if you can say he's my God. This is now the seventh time God uses that proper name Yahweh in the psalm. That's always a mark of completion, of fulfillment. It's what it's been driving at. A person who has been saved by God from the guilt of their sins can address God not only as Yahweh, but with the two other titles he uses here, Redeemer and Rock. He says, God, you're my Redeemer, possessive, my Redeemer. You're the one who purchased me and set me free. That's what the… It's, redemption is a very specific term. It was used in the slave market of the day, and if my kids got… You know, our town got invaded, my kids got hauled away, and they're being auctioned off slave, as, as slaves. The only way I can get them back is to pay the purchase price, the redemption price, and I redeem them, and I, I pay the money. I get my own people back. That's what God has done through Christ. He created you. You rebelled against Him. You were a slave to sin, and then God, in His great mercy, through the blood of His own Son. That 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 was the purchase price, redeemed you, and you can call him my Redeemer. But not only that, you can call him my rock. That's a technical term that means a fortress, a place of safety. It's where you hide from your enemies. And friend, I will tell you this, he will never be your rock until he is first your redeemer. The prophet Isaiah spoke of that redeemer and said, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. And the apostle Paul identified that redeemer so there would be no mistake for us when he said, our great God and Savior, Jesus. Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. The heavens will tell you every single day of your life, there is a God. Your Bible is telling you today, his name is Jesus. And the way to make Jesus your rock and your redeemer is to reject your sins and to embrace what He did on the cross for sinners like you, His death on, in your place. A oh, friend, I pray you would do that now. Life is short and eternity does not end. So repent. Believe on Christ. Remember the springboard? I said at the start of the sermon that this psalm is directing us to delight in God through the things He's created. How so? Can you see it now? What is David saying in this psalm? You will never respond correctly to general revelation, the things God has made, until you know the author of special revelation, the one who gave us this book. It is the special revelation, Yahweh's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true word is reviving, instructing, rejoicing, enlightening, enduring, and rewarding law. It's his special revelation that tells us who created the general revelation. <laughs> Special revelation is what tells us the sun is not God, but it is certainly declaring things about God. In other words, all of nature serves like the gymnast's springboard to launch your thoughts Godwards. So, when you leave here, look up to the sky, and when you see the sky's wide expanse Think of how that points you to a creator who is powerful and great. When you see its starry host in the night, let that lift your heart in praise to a maker who's beyond time and distance. When the sun, sun's brightness shines down on you on a summer's day, draw, let that draw out a love to God that your, lo, your, your life has been enlightened through his word. When you feel his, the warmth of that sun on your face, let that elevate your anticipation of the day, you will go to the place where No sun is needed, and all is seen in the light of His presence, and you will see Him face to face. When that sun rises every morning, affirm, this is the God who is worthy of my trust and my dependence. We can do that just with the sun and the sky. Every time you see a chipmunk flitting around your lawn, you can give thanks to the God of sovereignty that's directing that strange little creature. Every sparrow, you can give praise to the God who is carefully providing for that sparrow from His own hand. Every mountain, you can exalt. Exalt in a God who is stronger and greater than this puny little mountain. Every rain shower, you can be reminded of the blessings that He has poured out upon us richly in Christ. There is nothing in all that He has made that cannot be used to increase our delight in Him. Maybe one of the unseen effects of our phones and cars and air conditioning and screens is that we have stopped looking. And instead of looking with our Bible corrected eyes at the wonder that surrounds us, we're distracted and see all the wrong things. So, go outside this summer. Look around. But look past the things to the maker of the things. Let that tree elevate your delight. In Christ. And maybe as you do, pray, thank Him, and worship your Maker. Let's pray together. God, we freely admit that we would all be dead in our sins if we didn't have a Bible to tell us how to find You. We would grope about, we would worship created things, we would assign power to things that have no power. We are full of folly. We are so thankful for your word, that clean and true and perfect word to teach us. And I pray, Lord, that as we head into the summer months, we would use every moment when we look about us to delight in what you have done and to give you the praise for it. We know the maker of everything. What a privilege. We pray in his name. Amen.